Welcome to the Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. Welcome to Keys of the Kingdom. I'm Brother Gregory, and we're going to talk again about the Kingdom of God. And uh, we talked this morning about dearths in the land, and uh, that's an interesting topic in my opinion, my humble opinion, because of the fact that it is mentioned so much in the Bible numerous times. We see this word dearths in the biblical text, and... Uh, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. The New Testament is, Testament, it's this word that is lemos. And, uh, it means, you know, some kind of a shortage of stuff. And, uh, they mentioned that Agabus saw this dearth coming. And, uh, this lack coming that was coming upon the people. And, uh, that they needed to prepare for it. And this insight allowed them, and he was not the only one. There were others who had these perceptions of what was coming, and they prepared for it. The early Christians were a, a an actual group, a, a disciplined group. Uh, it wasn't an institution in the sense that where you're a member and then you kind of become financially responsible and... And one of the amazing, uh, clever, astonishing ways in which Jesus Christ approached teaching us about the kingdom and the keys to the kingdom was that he understood the, the legal process of international and natural law. And he organized the people in free assemblies. Not associations, not corporations, free assemblies. The only real corporation of God was the family. If we define a corporation as two or more people gathered together for a particular purpose under a pre-existing authority. And that pre-existing authority should be under the authority of God. But unfortunately, people are making contracts and covenants with governments... And they're entering into three-party contracts with the state whereby they have a uh, a less than uh, controlled right to the products of the marriage. In other words, the children. The three-party contracts with the state, when you go get a marriage license and you get someone who is licensed by the state to perform a marriage, something that no Christian was doing for hundreds and hundreds of years. There was such licensed marriages around in Rome at that time of Christ. And certainly afterwards, it was much more common. The original ones were often... Uh, not so much by license, but they would actually record the marriage with the, like the Temple of Saturn. And they would record the birth in the family with the Temple of Saturn. And that was a form of birth registration. But they were doing it in order to guarantee inheritance. This is my son. They had a custom in Rome that 
when a child was born, they would bring the child up and out to the father and lay the child, you know, wrapped up at the foot of the father. And if he picked up the child, then that child, you know, everybody saw him pick it up and then that meant that that child was an accepted heir of the father. He, whatever the father owned when, when he died, that would go to that child. Especially if he was the firstborn, and uh, he would get his name, and he would get whatever, and then they could write contracts, uh, last wills and testaments, so to speak, divide up their property, and this son gets this, and this son gets that, and and uh, etc. And they make uh, allowances for daughters, unmarried daughters, to be taken care of, and all this stuff. Just like today. And they would register these wills and testaments in their temples. Because their temples were government buildings. They might keep a copy. They might write it on clay tablets and then fire the uh, clay tablets that was common to make a contract with somebody for, you know, going to give you X amount of denarii if you deliver this and etc. They would write it in clay and then they would dry the clay or bake the clay and then that was a contract and if the terms of the contract were broken they literally could break the contract but they made a habit of keeping these contracts in these temples Uh, there were a couple of different ones that would keep different records and we go through that if you look up our article on temples and uh, at uh, Preparing You, we give you what they did with a lot of the different temples in uh, Rome. Because they were government buildings uh, providing all kinds of things for the people to protect the people from uh, legal problems, etc., so you had the temple of Saturn and the temple of Jupiter and the temple of Mars and the temple of Venus and Roma and then of course Diane and Neptune and Artemis and all these temples, Juno Moneta and you've heard us talk about Juno Moneta probably where that was actually a mint. It was a government building but it was a mint. They minted coin. Uh, the temple of Nebo. Nebo was the god of education. So when they provided... Uh, money to guarantee that uh, Romans could get educated, either building libraries or, or sometimes even giving, setting up schools uh, to teach certain things, and because they had, you know, they had to learn a lot of stuff. They, they ran banks, they ran armies, they had metallurgies. You would learn all these different skills, and uh, they were important for the functioning of government. So. Uh, they had a god of education, which was Nebo. And uh, so, but it wasn't so much the god, it was the services provided by the temples. And what that meant, temple of religion. Religion was how you take care of the needy of your society. So their their religious temples were providing those services to their society. So, we can go and uh, look at uh, what was going on at that particular time. And there were these dirs, and the temples were often needed to help out the people 
when there was a shortage of food. This is why you hear about free bread and circuses because they would actually bring whole shiploads of grain to be redistributed amongst the people who were registered members of a particular temple. And uh, every country, uh, in order to even be recognized as a country, had to have some sort of system of priests to provide this social welfare through. I mean, even if you went up to the Teutons, they had a way in which to take care of the widows by the free will offerings given to the Teutons, to the priests of the Teutons. And they would, you know, distribute that amongst the needy. And one of the, one of the things they had in one of their uh, festivals, like the Oktoberfest kind of thing, is that the wealthy would give all kinds of gifts to the priesthood. You know, uh, cattle, and uh, if they raised uh, sheep, they would include that, or or produce from their fields, uh, grain, uh, things that would keep, because they would give them to the priests, and the priests would help have them to help out the needy of their society. And there were lots of widows when there was wartime, and they had to make sure that they were taken care of. Now, uh, Israel did the same thing, and that was called Corban. The sacrifice that went to the Levites was to take care of the needy of society. The whole altar system uh, of Abraham and Moses were all about a system of social welfare. And we explain that in, in our articles on altars and sacrifice of sophistry, etc., so, but we don't understand this because of the fact, even though it's all in the Torah and in the, and the, and the different books of the Old Testament, people have been misinterpreting it for so long that they don't even understand what these altar systems were. Jesus understood. And so when Jesus was going to set them up, this was, there were sacred rules in all the countries about stealing from these ministers who provided this religious social welfare throughout the empire and even beyond, like the Teutons weren't in the empire, but they were doing it. And it's a way in which to bind society together because you you have this appreciation of the fact that they helped you out. They helped your family out when you were in need. It's like, uh, you know, you're born to a father and a mother, but what happened if they die? Well, you could be raised by an orphanage or maybe some other family took you in. You will have greater appreciation of your new parents, maybe, than even of your original parents. If they treat you with any kind of kindness and and take care of you. And the same goes and is magnified through the whole of society. And of course, now if you set up a system where you tax everybody and the money goes into a central treasury, which Jesus warned against, and then it was doled out to the needy as somebody saw fit, and but you had to pay in because it was a compulsory tax now. It wasn't a voluntary free will offering. It would actually make the middle class and the rich resentful of the poor because it wasn't done by voluntary sacrifice. 
So, anyway, what Jesus knew is how do you set up a system like this and keep it from getting corrupted? And that that's the that, that's the sixty four billion dollar question <laughs> or trillion dollar question. How do you keep the, your system of social welfare, your daily ministration, from becoming corrupted? Well, Jesus put a lot of things in his doctrines, in his instructions as to what to do. I mean, if you were going to be one of the apostles, you had to sell everything you had and give to the poor and then come follow him. And we see Barnabas doing that, selling his property in uh, Cyprus, then going to Jerusalem where the apostles were, taking all the money from the sale, laying it at the foot of the apostles, and then becoming Barnabas. He was Hoses before. And then as Barnabas, he began to, they would give him the funds to go and help out these people here or those people there, and Paul as well. And that was a system of social welfare entirely based on charity, while Rome had gone from one based on charity to one based on forced contributions. At first they forced foreigners to contribute, even sold foreigners into slavery to have, to fund this big, uh, social welfare system. But then eventually they even taxed the rich in, uh, the Roman, you know, in Roman provinces as well as in Rome itself. And the people would join too, but the people paid very little. Like uh, somebody was talking about, don't you think uh, the rich should pay their fair share? And everybody said, yeah, do you think the rich are paying their fair share now in America? No, they probably hardly even pay 2%. And it says, well, what if I told you that 90% of the taxes, uh, 90% of you know, the government is funded by the wealthy. Some will give you an 80% figure. Uh, and that the poorest people pay virtually nothing, can actually get a low-income credit where they actually, you know, they might pay in some Social Security money, but they can actually get a low-income credit where they end up with more back than they put in. There was a couple of years when we first got married where we moved and I was working at a job and then I was building our house and then I was working at another job. And so there were spaces of time there that I didn't have a regular income while I was building the house. And uh, we actually made poverty wages, poverty level wages that year as we were making that transition. And so we had a low-income credit coming back to us. Well, I never filed for it because I thought, well, no, I, the only reason I have low income is because I was doing these other things <laughs> that didn't work making me any money. And uh, they wanted me to fill out and apply for it, and I wouldn't do it. And this this went on for, you know, the couple of years where we did this, where I, I moved and changed jobs and moved to another place, but... And, uh, but they were giving out this low income credit. So if you were poor, you actually got more money back than you actually paid in. Now it appears that way, but now with gas prices going up and gas taxes, the poor are going to find themselves not <laughs> as well off as they thought. 
because they're going to be paying a lot of these hidden taxes. And, of course, with inflation, which is the greatest of all hidden taxes, uh, the poor are going to suffer immensely under that. But they deserved it to suffer with it for the most part because many of them wanted the socialist systems to be put in place. They they remain ignorant of how systems really worked. And, you know, they fell prey to the the, the liberal uh, uh, approach, this uh, uh, approach to uh, economy where, you know, you're going to take from the rich and give to the poor by forced contributions. Always that ends in disaster throughout history. But they don't know. But, of course... It's not just entirely their fault because their parents don't know. But, of course, their parents thought it was okay to send their kids to public school and never learn how uh, economics really works, how it doesn't work. But Christ knew all this stuff from the beginning. He could argue all these things that, no, no, you don't want the one purse of socialism. You don't want this coveting your neighbor's good, even if it's the rich. Because he knew, like Plutarch and like Polybius, that it would end up destroying and de- degenerating until destroying the people. So, what did he do? Well, he's, he set up this church. He appointed, he picked out a small group, first the 70, uh, who became his Sanhedrin, then the, the, the 12 apostles he picked out. And he obviously picked more, but... The apostles, what we know as the apostles today, are the ones that stayed with him. And others fell away. And those that stayed with him, they were appointed a kingdom. You are the ones who remain with me, and I appoint unto you a kingdom. And you are not to be like the governments of the Gentiles, who exercise authority one over the other. Which is why I read this morning the definition of the church according to... You know, uh, Black's Law Dictionary. And the church in its most general sense is the religious society founded and established by Jesus Christ to receive, preserve, and propagate His doctrines and ordinances. So where do you find the doctrines and ordinances of Jesus Christ? Well, people will say it's in the Bible. And of course it is in the Bible. And uh, there's other places, other ways in which you can find it, which is divine inspiration as well. But basically, if you look at the Bible, most all of it is covered in in principle, in structure, in the biblical text. But there's a lot of stuff in the biblical text that Jesus never mentioned. It's in the biblical text, but it was never mentioned by Jesus. So would it still be the doctrines of Jesus? Or just the doctrines of the Bible. Or the doctrines that people manufacture from reading the Bible. I mean, where did the Bible come from? Well, we know Paul wrote a bunch of it. And then there's the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They wrote a bunch of it. So, what is the deal? Who canonized the the, the Bible? And, of course, that's, uh, you know, somebody was writing... I saw a writing that, why does Luther, uh, Martin Luther get the right to can, you know, canonize the Bible? In other words, make this canon. This, this expression, Bible canon, it came to denote this 
the collection or list of books accepted as genuine inspired scripture. The term canon is derived from a Hebrew word, which is kuf nun hey, which actually means a reed. But a reed has a double meaning. A reed is also, when you cut a reed off at a certain length, it can be used to measure things. And it talks about in the Bible, in the Old Testament, that would be for carpenters to measure the truth about what's in the Bible, what's in the Torah. What What is the message from God that comes down to us through these stories? <coughs> because you can misinterpret this story and therefore misinterpret what God is trying to tell you and create whole doctrines around this misinterpretation because your reed is off. It's not a good measuring tool. So you have to have this reed of of righteousness to measure what is the rules, the doctrines of Jesus Christ. And the doctrines of Jesus Christ are often the doctrines of Moses, but they got Moses all mixed up. We know that because Christ said they did. Pharisees thought Moses said to do this and this and this and this. And Jesus said they don't even know Moses. They got it all balled up. They got it all mixed up. So, what is... What do we take out of the Bible? Well, you know, Thomas Jefferson wanted to have the red letter Bible where you take all the words that Jesus said and you remove everything else. Well, you could do that. You could certainly do that. And of course, the doctrines of Jesus are contained in those red words. But the rest of the Bible tells us something about the time, something about what people are doing and how they're reacting to things. And then, therefore, you read them so you can see why Jesus is saying certain things at certain times to certain people. It is clearly making uh, the rest of the writings in there are, can help us understand what Jesus is actually teaching. Because that's what we need to know. The, the doctrines of the church really should only be the doctrines of Jesus Christ. Now, a lot of churches are going to be very upset with that. They're going to say, what about this? What about that? And they've got all these little pet doctrines that they're they're going to put out, which may or may not be true. I'm not saying that, you know, like the virgin birth. Jesus never mentions the virgin birth. Is Is that a doctrine of Jesus? Well, he never taught it. Is it true? Well, it says it is. And it's in what they've canonized as the Bible, the inspired word. So, I would have to believe that Matthew was correct when he wrote about it. Luke was correct when he wrote about it. But it's not a doctrine of Jesus. It's a doctrine we get from the Bible. And so, we need to understand that. You know, one of the things about the Gospels, you know, like, who's Mark? Who's Matthew? Well, we have a kind of an idea who Matthew is. We don't have a very clear idea who Mark is. I mean, there's a lot of debate in it. There's some people that think the issue is settled, but we have to do some conjecture and and assume some things in order to say who Mark is because we don't really know. We know that there is a gospel of Mark. And we know they lived back then, but some people think he was somebody who worked with Peter as a Greek translator. And he may have been. It doesn't really tell us. 
but we have other apocryphal writings, writings outside of the Bible that tell us certain things about these people. So, the, the doctrine of the virgin birth, perfectly fine. I have no problem with that. The doctrine of, let's see, the Trinity. Uh, I don't like the word Trinity, but the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost are certainly mentioned uh, by Jesus. So, yeah, I have no... Now, your personal interpretation of what it means to have the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost, that may be a little cloudy. Because you go out there in all the 40,000, 50,000, 60,000 denominations and they have lots of different opinions about what that means. But really, we need to get the doctrines of Jesus Christ. And we do find that in the Bible. But how did the Bible get to be the Bible? Because there's all kinds of books that were floating around in the early church that people were reading and accepting as the authentic inspired word of God but we eventually get down to what we have today and we say well that's it well how did we get there because Jesus didn't tell us maybe the Holy Spirit told somebody but there's no doctrine of Jesus saying this is the right translation and that one isn't those are private interpretations of men there was a guy uh, Marcion or Marcion of Sinope uh, was a Christian leader uh, in uh, recorded history uh, who was later considered uh, a heretic by many, although his followers were around for quite a quite a long time, for at least a century or more. And uh, they continued to follow his teachings. But now who declared him a heretic? Well, there's a number of people who claimed that he was a heretic. and uh, uh, But then what does their claim actually look like? These people that claimed that he was this heretic. Because Arrhenius uh, was saying that. And, and there was a gospel of Mark Young. And uh, it's pronounced a couple of different ways. His teachings were different than what we have today, but actually some of the first people to come, uh, just a martyr supposedly said that, uh, denounced him. Well, he disagreed with him. That, that is true. In, in some things. Arrhenius, Tertullian, they also disagreed with him. In, in some things. Uh, the idea that calling him a heretic, well, that, that word took on other meanings as time went on. But the interesting thing is he was the first one to compile an actual Bible. And uh, which was really a collection of New Testament books. And then, the, but we know there was like uh, all kinds of extra books floating around. At least 14 very famous books that were excluded from the biblical text by Guys like Eusebius. And, but Eusebius was working for Constantine. And Constantine never really was a very good Christian. As a matter of fact, he was quite the opposite of a, a good Christian. He was doing all kinds of things that probably should not have done at all. And, uh, like murder all kinds of people, murderers, partners, etc. Now the Go- Gospel of Martial, 
uh, is very similar to, it's almost like an edited version of the Gospel of Luke. And, but it didn't get into the biblical text. Because maybe he said some things that other people didn't like. It's hard to say. Uh, they like to label him a Gnostic. Uh, and because he was a companion with uh, Valentinus, who was considered a Gnostic. But, and th- there was uh, writings that uh, complained about him. By guys who, if you knew everything they wrote, you might not even like what they had to say. But uh, Arrhenius, you know, he writes in his a certain uh, kind of credo or originated from this. The uh, Simonians came to Rome under Hygienius and taught that one who was proclaimed as God by the law and the prophets is not the father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, that, that's all a translation. So you have to understand what, you know, Jesus said, you also are gods. He said that, uh, uh, well, we know Augustus would claim to be a god. Caligula claimed to be a god. And, and what did that mean? And I heard, you know, another theologian talking about this today. And they never, uh, Bart Ehrman. The point is, is that it was the Constantinian church who first started to, uh, you know, the church established by Constantine. You have to realize, you know, like people will debate, well, was Constantine really a Christian? Uh, did he ever get baptized? Because that's so important, whether you get baptized or not. If you don't get baptized, you're not really a Christian. But... Uh, Baptized by what? Baptized by the Holy Spirit? Baptized by water? Uh, what was really important? Because you could dunk a lot of people in water and say magic words over them and they're no closer to the kingdom of God. It's, it, James says it's what you do that tells us whether or not you are close to the Father, uh, close to following the way of Christianity. And uh, that's what we need to do is follow that. You know, the the precepts and principles of Jesus Christ uh, that he was laying down and his, his doctrines, his ordinances, what he said to do. And that's what we should be doing. So like I said, the Gospels came along after most of all Paul's writings were already in place. Uh, at least in theory, because we don't always know exactly when some of Paul's writings were, or even if he did it, because it seems like the writing style changed so much. But I don't have a problem with saying that this is a gospel, uh, an epistle of Paul, and that's an epistle of Paul. I do note the the difference in writing styles, but Paul could be dictating it to somebody else, and you know, because that was a common thing. He's you know. I got a lot to do, you know, write about this, write about that. And Paul proved it and said, okay, send it out in my name. There's no reason to believe that that isn't the case. And I don't find any contradictions in the text. But again, the doctrines of Paul are not the doctrines of Jesus Christ necessarily. 
we should read Paul and try to understand what Paul is trying to tell us, especially since Peter says that what Paul is going to try to tell us is difficult to understand. So it's easy to get Paul wrong. So if we find out what Paul was actually intending to say and ask ourselves, is it in conformity to what Christ said? Because then we're, we're using the read of Christ to determine if Paul, what Paul said is true. Because you don't want to use the read of Paul to determine if what Christ said is true, because then you're following the doctrines of Paul. And you can't even really use the Bible to determine what the doctrines of, you know, if the doctrines of Christ are in conformity. We have to assume that Christ's statements, you know, although he talked a lot in parables, we have to assume that he was giving us the doctrines of the church. And we should be following those doctrines of the church. And, uh, you know, like we can look at uh, uh, the Muratorian uh, canon, which was uh, another attempt to create a canon, a, a Bible context. What is authentic books of the Bible? And that was about 200 A.D. And uh, it was one of the earliest compilations of canonical text, uh resembling the, what we have today as the New Testament. But it, it was not until the 5th century that all the different Christian churches came to a basic agreement on the biblical canon. That's the 5th century. Vesuvius is back there in 300 A.D. putting this together based on you know a lot of what came down to us through the first council of Nicaea which was in 325. And uh, this was an ecumenical council that Constantine commanded uh, us, uh, not us, but, you know, his group of Christians to uh, form this biblical text. Well, Constantine just commanded everybody in the empire certainly at first with the Edict of Milan, everybody should just get baptized. You know a lot of those people who went and got baptized were not really repenting. They were still bringing to their baptism some of their age-old thinking. And we know this because Constantine was giving them millions upon millions upon millions of dollars and land and everything else to get them jump-started as Christians. Except for... He was one of those men who exercised authority. That's how he had those millions. You know, when he killed his partner and his partner's family, who got his partner's property? He killed everybody in the family. So there's no heirs left. He took it. So that allowed him to be very generous to this new church he was starting, the Constantinian church. And so... They were coming up with creeds and, you know, the Nicene Creed and, and, and what should be in the Bible and what should not be in the Bible. And then eventually we had, uh, Athanasius, uh, who was a bishop of Alexandria. But was he a bishop in the tradition of Peter and, and the apostles? 
or was he a bishop in the tradition of Constantine? Was he taking gifts, gratuities, and benefits from whoever was emperor in 367? Uh, knowing full well that the reason they had these gifts to give is because they were taken away from their neighbor by exercising authority one over the other. You see the dilemma that we're having here with why are these books in the Bible? It's not based on the uh, on the total moral character of uh, and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to create this Bible. Now, I'm not taken away from the Bible at all. Taken away from the men who said this is all we can read as sacred scripture. Because they were not doing what Christ said to do. In many cases, they were doing the opposite. So, this is, this is where we're at with that. And I've written a lot in the past, but I've just started some pages to try to put all this together when you're talking about the Bible. In the canon of the Bible, are we actually figuring out uh, what and why things were written in the Holy Scriptures the way they were? And uh, we need to know if we're following Christ or we're following somebody's interpretation. Like when everybody, there were people pressuring me to write a doctrine of the church. And I thought, well, Christ already wrote it. The doctrine of the church is the doctrines of Christ. No, they want, like all the other churches, they want a doctrine that, you know, why is... It wasn't everybody wanted this, but there were people who were voicing it. And they wanted us to put down what the doctrines of Christ are. And, of course, what the doctrines of the church are. Well, I went and read Hundreds of doctrines in all kinds of different churches. And I came to the obvious conclusion that most of them didn't know what they were talking about. Now, that's that's kind of a bold statement on my side. side but go and look at the doctrines of whatever church. Assembly of God, Lutheran Church, Methodist Church. Count up all the words in those doctrinal statements. And who said them? And if it was said by Jesus, put it over in the right-hand column. I mean, the specific words of Jesus, put it over in the right-hand column. If it's said by the men writing the doctrine for that church, put it over in the left-hand column. And then count all the words in the two different columns. And tell me, does your church have... 51% of the words in its doctrines straight out of the mouth of Christ. And then, after you come to that conclusion, in many cases you'll find out that, nope, most of the words in the doctrines of churches is not coming out of the mouth of Christ. It's coming out of men who are privately interpreting the Bible and telling you what it means and, and what you should think. Because most of them think that religion is what you think about God. They don't realize that religion is how you take care of the needy. But, anyway. So, you count up those words. Now, go and look at all the red letter words in the Bible. Where Jesus gives us specific instructions for his followers. 
and find where the doctrine of that church talks about those instructions of Jesus Christ. And you will find, in most cases, that most of the actual instructive statements of Jesus Christ are not accounted for in the doctrines of these churches. And to me, that's just astounding. But that's just the way it is. And of course, then you get all kinds of crazy things where now the Corbin of the Pharisees that made the word of God to none effect is now absolutely legal in America. But it's not. It's not the way it should be. As, as a matter of fact, it's the opposite of the way it should be. <laughs> so, this, this, this creates more and more dilemmas as you go down the list of things that we should understand. You know, like, uh, and, and, you know, I could go through and I could pick out, uh, Athanasius, uh, the Bishop of Alexandria and say, well, what did that guy do? What did that guy not do? You know, cause he's coming up with this biblical document. What kind of a character was he? And we talk about Ambrose, who was, you know, back in the time of Vesuvius. And Ambrose was doing all kinds of things that were contrary to the ways of Christ. And so, are we doing the same thing today as Ambrose and others were doing way back then? So, I hope to put all these together, but back to what we were talking about this morning is that the dearth is a shortage. Well, today we have a shortage of understanding of the biblical text. I have listened to theologians and and teacher after teacher trying to figure out what you know what what uh, do they say about this and what do they say about that and I'm I'm just astounded at how often they are inaccurate of what the biblical text actually says and we have this assumption that you know, when we come to look at it, that, oh, King James Bible has got all the answers. That's what we're supposed to read. We're not supposed to listen to anything else. You know, I have people say, no, I just only use the Bible. Well, nobody only uses the Bible. Everybody uses dictionaries to find out the meaning of words. And depending on what translation you're depending on or what version you're depending on, you may have all kinds of different ideas about what the Bible says, and that's why you end up with forty, sixty thousand different denominations. And so, we're constantly showing the inconsistencies of people's interpretations of the Bible. Now, I don't find mistakes in the Bible. I find a few places where it seems to contradict. But what are they really talking about? It's like, uh, you know, a parable. They're telling a parable and it talks about two sons. What if they talked about two daughters? <laughs> Does that change the outcome of the uh, parable? Does that mean that the, I've altered the parable? Well, in some senses, in some sense it does mean that I've altered it, but not the meaning. 
Because two daughters could, you know, one could go out and say, I don't want to do it, and then change their mind and go and does it. And then the other one says they will do it, but then they change their mind and they don't do it. Well, I get to ask the same question. Which one did the will of the Father? Which is the whole point of the story. And so I have to ask you, which one of you are doing the will of the Father? Are you operating a a daily ministration like the Gentiles did by forcing the contributions of your neighbor? Because then you're not doing what Christ said. You're doing something else. And this is what we have to see. If we're going to see the truth, we have to see where we stray from what Christ said to do. And we stray in lots and lots of different places. So, Anyway, we're we're going to, like I say, get into Galatians, hopefully here uh, next week. Uh, but what I really want to see people do is asking more questions. And, and put together good questions and put them on the Internet. Uh, we may have a community call tomorrow. I, I know the one is scheduled. I'm, I've been able to get there a couple of times. We may try it again. Um, I should look at the studio here and see what kind of uh, uh, oh we got several people listening I don't see anybody raising their hand uh, to ask a question but that's what we're going to have to do is start uh, getting some interaction back and forth and one way to do that is to Verbalize your question. I saw people doing this when they go live on Facebook and people are asking questions and he's reading the questions and trying to answer them right there. Uh, but it would be really great if people were to join the network, ask questions on the network, and then when you get onto the uh, network and you ask those questions, we'll try to address them. I saw lots of questions this week from people in different parts of the country. And I started building pages to answer them. But what we were really talking about at the beginning of this is the legal mind of Christ. He created free assemblies because he came to set the captive free. The it, the tens, fifties, hundreds, and thousands, the Judeans were organized in exactly that manner because synagogues were ten families. But what they did different is that they signed up with the temple, often through their congregations, to get these benefits that were provided by the offerings of the people. But if you signed up, you had to pay in, and there would be Gabi and Molokai ministers come by to collect what you had to pay in. You know, if you owed 10% of your or 20% of your field of grain... They were there pacing off the field to know. But Jesus was creating another system, still organized in the tens, fifties, hundreds, and thousands. Not signed up congregations where you've made a commitment, where you've given somebody the power to collect money from you, to force the sacrifice from you. Because that's foolish, according to Samuel, to... To set up a system where you can force the contributions of the people, that's a bad deal. That That's going to degenerate the people. 
But that's what they were doing. But Christ said, no, this is the way we do it. He was setting up a government. It is one form of government, but the way it works is that he, your minister still may come to you and say, well, what do you think you owe according to, you know, the tithing, 20% of your income? Well, that would be a tremendous burden on people today because most people are already paying taxes to the tune of 20, 30, 40%. But according to, if we had a strict interpretation of the tithing concept, what would you owe? Maybe you'd owe $5,000, $10,000 this year to the church. Now, I'm not telling you to send me that money. <laughs> but then the second question the ministers of Christ are supposed to ask, what, what can you afford? And this is, this is uh, rhetorical. We don't actually have to go... It's kind of understood that we can't create a daily ministration unless we get some support from the people. But then you have to ask yourself, okay, what is, uh, what, this is what you owe, but what is it that you can afford? And if you say, I can only afford 10 bucks, we're supposed to say painful. This is the instructions of Christ. Now, in order to get away with this, because now uh, free, uh, private religion was legal, and this is what was happening. Millionaires, what we would call millionaires, rich people, were joining the church. They were joining the government established by Jesus Christ in Judea that was recognized by Rome. And anybody who got the baptism of Jesus Christ was cast out of their the system they were in before. And so now at Pentecost, they were joining this other system. They still had taxes. We call them tithings. But you tell me what you can afford. I don't tell you what you can afford. Yeah, I was talking with a guy in Australia. He made a pretty good sum of money last year, but then he lost his job because he wouldn't get the jabs. And he couldn't cross the borders and, as a truck driver unless he had the jabs. So he's not making as much money this year. But he has to pay the taxes this year as if he's making the same amount of money that he made last year. Well, that's just about impossible. And But that's that's how crazy they have gotten. And they'll, they're going to get any crazier than that here. You just have to figure out what government you want to belong to. Now, when the Israelites were in Egypt, they realized they didn't want to belong to the government of Pharaoh. They wanted to come out of the government of Pharaoh. But he wouldn't let them go. Even though the actual legitimate Pharaoh was Moses. He was the one who owned the people. These are my people. I own them. You keep this stuff. I want the people. We're going to go out to the desert. And he wouldn't let them go. And then eventually he did let them go. What, what, how did they operate that government? Again, Jesus is saying these ministers and we can show you in the law today that an ordained minister of the church who does exactly what Jesus Christ says he can leave the system now he can't take a lot of stuff with him but he can leave the system but the only reason he should do that is to help set the captives free that are still in the system and 
like I say, everybody's going to get free someday. But everybody's not going to survive freedom. What we have to do now is learn how to live like free people if we were free. And like I was mentioning, we don't have much time to go into it, but you can go look up, you know, marriage at Preparing You or even at HisHolyChurch.org and you'll see where we talk about this three-party contract. And it's not my words. It's, you know, we quote the law. We quote the Superior Court and Supreme Court, what they decided that the state has authority over your children. We were telling the story this morning during the show of just what's happening in Idaho where they're taking kids away from people without any due process, what they say is due process, and that people have to prove that they have a right to their children because the state already assumed because, and we've explained this, you go read those articles, it's parent-patria. The state is your father. And it's the father of your children. And they could take it away. Now, people will say, oh, well, that isn't, that isn't lawful and everything. And they got all these arguments. And, you know, well, we, we've got a whole page full of gurus that tell you that, no, you are merchandise. You're back in the bondage of Egypt. They do have a right to do this. But if you want to change that, you have to change the way you think. That's what repentance means. Change the way you think. And the way you think has to change the way you've been acting. You have to stop the covetous practices and start the practices of righteousness. And Christ set it up so that there's a legal way to pursue liberty under God. And there's a legal way to obtain it. But it's not about filling out papers, although there might be some paper involved. It's about changing the way you think and the way you act. And then it will start to change you just as 50 years, 60 years, 100 years of social welfare has changed the way Americans think. And that's what we have to do is go back to the way we should be thinking, which is the way of righteousness. So anyway, we're at the end of the program here and I'm going to sign off, but join the network. When you're on the network, form congregations Eventually, try to get those congregations, the tens, hundreds, and thousands. You don't have to send any money. <laughs> not trying to get your money. You mentioned tithing. I saw somebody drop the call right away. No. it's You tithe according to the service. We don't provide any service. You don't tithe to us. And then even when you do tithe to us, you get to decide what you think we're worth. It's We're giving you choice back. The rest of the world's going to take it away. Now, if you you think you're just going to do, you know, battle windmills and fight the dragon, uh, lots of luck with that. But we're talking about you're going to need other people who care as much about you as you care about them. If you don't care about them, then don't tithe. <laughs> don't. Don't share anything you have with anybody else. You just keep all your stuff and you run through the desert and tell everybody how free you are. (laughs) Not going to work out well in the days ahead because a dearth is coming and I don't need Agabus to tell me. You just look at the news and there's going to be a dearth of everything that you can imagine. And it's, it's going to get ugly. But that's not why you come together. You come together because you care about others. 
as much as you care about yourself. Until then, peace on your house and may God be with you. God bless. You have been listening to The Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. For more information on the educational ministry provided by His Holy Church and Brother Gregory, including services, counseling, lectures, books, and other audio materials, please write to His Church at Summer Lake, Box 10, Summer Lake, Oregon, 97640. You can also find us on the web at www.hisholychurch.net. Thank you.